If y'all have a Bible, you can find uh, Ruth in the Old Testament. All right, let's start with prayer. Father, meet with us now, we ask. Be our teacher, be our helper. Uh, give us grace and favor that we don't deserve as we look at your word and use it. We plead to encourage each one of us just in the way that you know uh, that we need today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, the only announcement I've got is uh, lunch today. So I hope all of you will, you know, if you want to go home and take a nap and come back, that'd be fine. But we have lunch over in the lodge today. Um, we do that the 4th. Sunday of the month, we will not have lunch in March, so because there's too much, there's other stuff going on over there, but we will again in April, all right, so fourth Sunday of April will be the next time, so there's always enough food, I hope everybody will stay, even if you didn't bring anything, that's perfectly fine, and thank you for using the thing, the sign-up thing, it like, it's like it filled up on Thursday, that's great, so I was all prepared to nix it if we didn't use it this time, so that's good, that helps. That helps. So you can look at it and say, well, I don't need to bring that. I'll bring this instead. All right, Ruth, chapter 1. Just a quick review. Um, what we decided was, was that uh, the book of Ruth, it's about a lot of different things. You could make it into a Bible study of a dozen different things. But we're going to look at it as a story of love. But as soon as you hear that word love, strike it. And use a better word, and that's the Old Testament Hebrew word hesed, uh, which shows up in the first chapter of the book. Hesed means loyalty, loyal love. It means committed love. And I'm going to give you an, another definition of hesed that I didn't use last time, one that uh, Paul Miller uses. And I'm roughly following this book, Paul Miller, A Loving Life. It's a study of Ruth from the standpoint of learning how to love people in our lives who are hard to love, right? And just keep in mind, you're probably that somebody. So don't just think, oh, yeah, I can think of all these people I don't like. Well, you, you, probably, want, you probably make somebody else's list. So, and I, the homework I gave you, no, the homework I gave you last time was to think of, because listen, that's, that proves the gospel is real when you do that, right? Remember we read Jesus in Matthew 5, I think he says, if you just love people that love you, the people that are like you, anybody can do that. That's nothing. That doesn't prove anything. But when we love just the people that providence puts in our lives, no matter who they are, no matter how difficult they might be, that's the gospel uh, in action. We, uh, again, by way of review, look at verse, chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. And uh, to figure out what that meant, we went back and we read the very last sentence of the book of Judges. And what does the last sentence of the book of Judges say? Somebody say it. Everybody did right what was right in his own eyes, and we modernized that as saying, Everybody followed his heart. Everybody, uh, everybody did what they wanted to do to make them happy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's the Disney world. Follow your heart. So that's the setting that this happens in. 
And this kind of love is exactly the opposite of anything like that. Nothing to do with feelings. Nothing to do with doing what I want to do to make me happy. Now, just to get us back up to speed, let me read the first nine verses again. This is what we looked at last time. Let me read it again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But... Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Now, something you, uh, I didn't point this out last time, but if you notice, it says in verse 1, they went to sojourn, which is a trip. Then it says they remained there, verse 2. Then it says in verse 5 or verse 4, they stayed 10 years. So a a visit turned into a long time. Uh, Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on the way to return to the land of Moab. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And deal kindly, see that? That's the word hesed. Uh, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said, No. We'll return with you to your people. Now, the first thing I want to do is address some pushback that I got last week. I got some pushback as in, you know, I don't think Naomi was quite the paragon of godliness that you're painting here. And what I should have said, but I didn't think to say, I should have said, uh, wait till we go a little further in the story, and you're right. Um, she's not perfect. She doesn't have perfect motives. She's, very, she's been very much affected by her surroundings. <clears throat> and I was talking to Philip about this. Philip Armatree. This is great. I was talking to Philip, and you know what he said? He said, it's almost like she's a real person. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly it. She's a real person. The Bible shows everybody's flaws. That's one of the arguments that it's true, right? And rather than a fairy tale. So the two young Moabite widows intend to go to Israel with Naomi, their mother-in-law. And that right there is a picture of Hesed. Why would they do that? Why would they even think of doing that? And Naomi pretty firmly says, no, go home. You can start over with a new family. You have no future with me. But I'm still going to say, as we did last week, when Naomi says this, that was an act of selfless love on Naomi's part, but not without its problems, as you're about to see. I'm going to say it again. She's a real person. Now, let's read a little further and see what we learn here. Verse 10, 
They said, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, verses verse 11, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband, husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight, even if I got married today and got pregnant tonight and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? I see there's a little reference to the, the old law that if a brother dies, his, his brother could continue the family name. She says, I, we can't do that. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. So now Naomi pulls out all the stops with this grief-stricken argument, right? She, she paints the situation so bleak that the girls would have to see sense and turn around and go home, right? They would have to be persuaded to go home. She says, basically, I'm summarizing. She says, face the facts. I'm as good as dead. My life is over. You don't, you don't want to stick with me. You don't want to do this. But yours doesn't have to be. And remember last time we, we surmised that they're the ages of these women, the, the two sisters, uh, the two young widows are probably in their mid-twenties. Uh, Naomi's probably in her mid-fifties. So 1100 B.C. in the ancient Near East, mid-fifties, you know, you're, you're way out there. You're not going to remarry. And so Naomi paints this picture uh, uh, of, of how desolate, and she's right. Her life is going to be from now on. Now, some would say that what Naomi says there that I just read, that was just an outburst of self-pity and bitterness. She's basically saying, don't y'all feel sorry for me? Or we could say she really loves these two girls and she wants what's best for them. So which is it? Somebody say, yes. She's a human. All right. Now... There's a, there's a biblical category for this little speech that she gives in verses 11 to 13. You find it elsewhere in the Bible. You know what, it, what is it called? It's, a, it's somewhere between a third and a half, one-third and one-half of the Psalms. It's called lament. It's a, it's a real thing. It's in the Bible. Lament can make us a little nervous when we read them. Why? Because they can come across as a little disrespectful. You know? Yes, and I'm going to ask that in a question in a second. Um, Laments can make us a little nervous because they can seem disrespectful toward God, and we could read them, we could take an hour to read them all in the, in the Psalms. Psalms are full of it. That doesn't sound right. Psalms are full of it. They're full of lament. Um, 
Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget about me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Jesus used a lament. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord, will you look on? Why do you make us wander from your ways? And then my favorite is a paraphrase of Psalm 74, 11. I'm not making this up. Paraphrase, a good paraphrase is, why don't you get your hands out of your pockets and do something? Does that make you uncomfortable to talk to, talk to God that way? Well, look at, look at Ruth here. Look at verse 13. And I want you to tell me what you think about this. Verse 13, uh, second half of the verse, she says, No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Is she right to say that or is she wrong? What do you think? She feels that way. Can she, is it true? But is it true? Has, God, has the hand of the Lord gone out against her? No. She's lost her husband and two sons. Is God sovereign? You see how to kind of... Let me ask this question. What is the difference between lament which I think we can presume God allows and even encourages because the Psalms are full of it. What is the difference between lament and just plain old bitter complaining? And what's the best example of that in the Bible? Israel, after they came out of Egypt, their complaining was so bad and so offensive to God that he essentially killed off the whole generation and didn't let them go into the promised land. That's how bad it was. But what's the difference between the two? One is, is in belief. And it's just complaining. It's just complaining to you. In the Psalms, the complaints are, the complaints are always toward God. So they're in faith. They're talking to God. That's the difference. Well, do you think Naomi crosses that line here? Is she, what's she doing? And there's more coming later in the chapter. This is, she's just getting started here. When she gets back to Bethlehem, which we'll come to next week, she really cuts loose. Out in public, in front of everybody. Does she cross the line here from lament into complaint? Just complaining, do you think? Does it matter? So, uh, do we feel the urge to correct Naomi with some good theology? Do, you, do we want to take her aside and say, listen, Naomi, let me, let me preach to you Romans 8, 28. Do, do, do we want to do that? You don't want to do that. In fact, just let me ask you this question. How does God respond to Naomi's lament? Does he, does he take her aside and give her a lecture? How does he respond? 
It's, it's so obvious you're going to miss it. How is, how is he responding to Naomi's lament? He gives her Ruth. That's exactly right. Um, so, do we feel the urge to correct Naomi with, good, with some good theology? Or can we say this? Is Naomi's anguish and frustration here driven by good theology? Hmm? In other words, she knows God is sovereign and in control. That's why she's mad. Have you ever been there? Right? She, that's why she's, she says, I know God is sovereign. That's, that's why I'm mad at Him. That's, why, that's when we can ask the questions, why, how long, when, what are you doing? Get your hands out of your pockets. Why do you stand there watching? The Psalms are full of that. It's okay to pray that way. Because I know everybody in this room, you've either prayed that way or, you, or you've wanted to. Well, I'm going to give you permission. You can pray that way. It's, it's, it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel right. But we can do it because it, it's, an expression of, it's an expression of faith. I don't understand. Help me. I need your grace. So you come to verse 14, and the girls, they can't answer. Because she's right. I can't get married and raise up new sons for y'all to marry. We can't do that. I've got nothing to offer you. I've got nothing. My life is over. So Orpah, which I think somewhere through history must have, somebody misread it and changed it into Oprah. Orpah does the sensible thing. She turns around and goes home. But look at verse 14. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. All right, look at verse 15 and tell me what you see here. And uh, Naomi said, talking down to Ruth, now it's just the two of them. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, here's where we can pick on Naomi a little bit. All right. Actually, I'm going to let Paul Miller do it. He says, Naomi is so caught up in selling her opinion that she goes pagan on us. Is that right? Encouraging Ruth to go back to the Moabite god Chemosh. Chemosh. Her words reflect the pagan culture of the book of Judges where syncretism was rampant. Who, who remembers what syncretism is? How do you define that word? You, you take the one true religion and you mix it up with the others. It's, it's the book of Judges. You know, they were, they were mixing it, just trying to mix it all together. Doesn't really matter. You know, it's kind of a, it's a variation of all roads lead to God. Just mix them all up, mix and match your own. So Naomi's been living in the book of Judges in pagan Moab for 10 years. So she just kind of defaults to thinking that way. She says, go, you can go back to your gods. Um, na listen to this. Naomi is focused on Ruth and her needs. That's good. 
But when we make the person we are loving the center of our life and not God, we're idolizing love. Can we do that? Have we ever done that? Can we do that? Can you do that with children? Can you do it with grandchildren? No. Well, you see how Ruth is done? I mean, Naomi, she's, she really loves Ruth. She loves her so much, she tells her, go back and be a pagan like you used to. So that, that was not a good thing. What else do you see in verse 15? Why does she say, uh, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods? Why does she say it like that? Instead of your people and your gods. Why do you think she says it like that? Yes. Does do you think do you think she already knows something about Ruth? Well, in any case, what comes next? is um, the high point of the story. So it's all downhill from here. Uh, and it's what Ruth now says in verse 16. First she says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. So we could... Tr- we could uh, we could re-say that at like this. She's saying, just stop it. Just stop it. Just stop saying this. I don't hear it anymore. And then she could have just said, I'm staying with you. But she doesn't just say, I'm staying with you. She says, she says that. And I wrote it up on the board so we could, so we could uh, analyze it who remembers uh, uh, diagramming sentences in the ninth grade? Isn't that when we did that in Mississippi? Is that right? Was it the eighth grade or the ninth grade? You did, we only did it for one year. I think it was the ninth grade. I was in Macomb, Mississippi. And that was horrible. I just remember it was just horrible. It, I mean, it's this simple now. If you look, think about it, there's nothing to it. But I just remember that being like a nightmare. So let's call this a diagram of Hesed. Here's what she says. Um, Let me read it the way it reads in the ESV. Uh, For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Now, I don't think any of the English translations set that off as poetry, but it is, it is Hebrew poetry because it's three uh, couplets. It's three lines where, where the same, the similar thought is doubled. That's how he, Hebrew poetry always works like that. You can find it everywhere. So, let's figure out what she's saying here. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. What is she, what is she saying in that? First stanza. Put it in your own words. What is she saying? 
How, how is she saying, I'm staying with you? She's, she's, she, let me put it like this. She's committing herself to Naomi as a person. As a person. What's she saying? Where, where, you, where you go, I will go. All right. We're always only doing one of two things. We're either living here or we're moving around. So she says, wherever you live, I'm going to live. And where, when you go, I'm going to go with you. And then what about the second stanza? Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Staying. I'm going to stay with you. What's she saying with this? Well, she kind of gave away the next point. <laughs> Ruth... Ruth is, Ruth at this point, she is converted from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. She's more converted than Naomi is. And you were saying that that's, that's exactly what she's saying here. What else is she saying? It's almost like a, a marriage vow. Almost. Like a marriage vow. Yeah, here she commits herself to Ruth the person. With this, she commits her, her, herself to, to Naomi's whole world. Her whole world, her people, her God. That's everything. That's your whole world, not just your person, but your whole everything. That's exactly what it is. He was just part of the pantheon. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Which makes you ask, why does she want to stay with her? It's like she's committing to go live in. Is it Naomi or is it? All right, so that this might help us or it might not. Then what is the function of the third stanza? Show sure. The whole thing. For sure. So she seems to have said everything here. Then what is the point of the third stanza? Think hard. Where you die, I'll die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. So that then we could ask the question, is this a declaration of commitment to Naomi or to God? Is she, putting, is she putting God ahead of Naomi when you take the whole thing together? Because think about it. Now here's where this has been used for a, uh, to talk about marriage. In fact, I have a little show and tell. Okay. Here we go. So, we got engaged... Uh, in November of 1988, uh, Thanksgiving. And then her birthday is the 28th, which is like, a, what was it, four days later. So on her birthday, I read this to her. I read this to her, right? It wasn't, and gave her this rose. So there it is, pressed in there, and it hangs in her house. And then she framed it and gave it to me for my birthday. So I was seeing this as about marriage. Probably not paying any attention that it was said by a young girl to her mother-in-law. But how does this go beyond marriage? Let's say two people are married. One dies. Well, the other might move to Chicago and get remarried. Or any number of things. Just really move on. But Ruth is saying, I'm going to go be so a part of your people that when you die, I'm going to stay in Bethlehem. So, in a sense, she's, by saying this, she's putting God ahead of Ruth. And that's amazing. Sure she is. She's what? Leading Naomi. I think so. 
Mm-hmm. Ruth is saying, I'm not just coming along to take care of you. I love Yahweh, and I'm going to live among his people. She did know it. How did, how did that happen? How did, how did that happen to Ruth? That's right. She, was, she lived in a family where they were talking about Yahweh, and that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing we can be sure of is they talked about God in that house. And they probably, I don't know, they probably all lived in one house. It's been pretty common. And you can also be sure they did not have a Bible. What was the Bible then? It was just the first five books. And what was the chance that individual families had a copy of that? No way. In fact, we're coming out of the times of the judges. There might not have been a Bible around. But they talked about it. But Ruth is still not finished. Look at what she does after her, her declaration of love for Yahweh. She says, verse 17, May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. You ever heard that phrase before? Till death do us part. Now that's, there's where it comes from. So she takes this oath where she pronounces God's curse on herself and notice whatever the bad thing is, she doesn't even say it. We don't know what, what it is. She doesn't mention the bad thing. She says she takes God's curse on herself if she fails to follow through on her hesed till death do us part. Listen to this. Reflect for a minute on how we usually relate to people who are overwhelmed with a grief that won't go away. At worst, we distance ourselves. At best, we empathize with them or encourage them to go to counseling to work through their grief. Many professionals medicate them. None of that is inherently wrong. Listen. But none of that would have helped Naomi. That's not what she needed. What she needs is lifelong physical help and companionship. Too old to remarry. Ruth sees to the core of the issue and acts in her heart by binding herself to Naomi for life. Naomi has said, in effect, to Ruth and Orpah, you have to save your life. In order to save your life, you have to lose me because my life is over. Ruth responds with, my life is over. And again, the big question, why would she do this? All right, uh, Paul Miller quotes somebody else as saying this. Not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. Do you remember what Abraham's leap of faith was? Pack up your family and go. Where are we going? 
Well, I'll tell you when we get there. That's it. That's all they got. Just pack up and go. Not only has Ruth broken with family, country, and faith, but she has also reversed sexual allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an old woman rather than to the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. Now listen to this. Tell me if you think this is exaggerated. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. No more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. So, how and why did she do this? This is Hesed. This is an illustration of Hesed. Remember, that's the whole point of the story. Why would she do this? How could she do this? <coughs> Excuse me, what do you think? You got three minutes. Yes, God is sovereign, but what's happened, what's happened on the inside of her to, to make her want to do this? That's all we're talking about here. She has tasted deeply of God's hesed for her, right? Though, and remember, only from one little family talking about Yahweh, out of nothing, they know nothing but what's in the five books of Moses. They know the creation story and the Exodus story. That's all they know. But is that enough? Is the Exodus story, that's the, that's the great story of redemption, of salva salvation by faith apart from works. That's what the Exodus is about. And she has tasted deeply of that. And that gives her, and her relationship with God gives her the strength to do this. Her understanding, if we can put it the way we would put it, her understanding of grace. She's a Moabite. Who was in, uh, who was in church at 8.30? Did you hear Randy go on about election? Here it is. If you're going to be here at 11, not go on about it, but the calling of Levi. The calling of Levi. Jesus walking down the street. There's Levi's tax booth. Come with me. Follow me. Out of the blue sky. What is that if it's not Sovereign election. Ruth in Moab, pagan nation. Look at this. You know who she's going to be? Now we know. We have to give the spoiler. She's going to be David's great-grandmother. Look at this. She's a Moabite. She's nobody. She's a... Uh, so think of how much more... Thank you. How much more we know of God's love for sinners. How much more do we know than Ruth ever dreamed of. Ruth would never have dreamed of what we know about the gospel and about grace. So how much more should we be able to love and serve the people that providence has placed in our lives that may be hard to love and serve? We've all got them and you may be somebody's. So, right? Right? 
All right, now when we, next time, we will see Ruth and Naomi come walking into Bethlehem, and everybody's going to say, is that Naomi? Is that Naomi? And who is that funny-looking young lady with her? Who is that? So that's where we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a picture that you give us here in your word of, of love. And yet it pales into nothing in comparison for the way that you loved us in Christ. Uh, grant that we would drink deeply from that anew this very day. Uh, hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All righty.